Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn back with me to Acts chapter 17, where we were reading just a moment ago, and uh, those two first words in that first verse, they're kind of rough. When uh, I've done this my whole life, ever since I'm from Bible college on, whenever I preach, I preach, you all are getting a second message. The first message I preach is usually Thursday or Friday, and the only recipient is Moses, my dog. I usually do it in the dining room because the counter is about the height of this, and you know I must just go through it and uh, and uh, pray for him. He ain't never he's backslidden. He don't ever come forward, and uh, usually he runs in the other room because I think he thinks I'm yelling at him. But um, over the past few weeks, uh, we saw this second mission trip by Paul and his teammates. They entered a new mission field. They went to Macedonia, Philippi. That was the first place and that region that they went, what is today northern Greece. And um, in this passage that we're going to study together this morning, the mission team continues to move throughout the region of Macedonia. They're sharing the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. They're planning churches in the different cities of that region. Now, two of those cities, Thessalonica and Berea, uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning. They reveal the gospel to some people there. Some receive it, and some reject it. And in studying how they ministered here, there's a lot that you and I can learn about how we are to fulfill the Great Commission, uh, what that ought to look like in our own lives, and uh, how we should respond uh, when we do, and the gospel's either received or rejected. But before we study this verse by verse, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to be with us in our time here together this morning. Father, we come now to your word, we've sung about it, and now uh, we come to it and ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal its truth to us. May the gospel be revealed, not just to those who have never received it, but even to us who have. Um, It it is uh, how we grow closer to you by always keeping the gospel centered in our lives, at the forefront in our minds, driving our decisions. Uh, strengthening our faith. Uh, Lord, I, would, I pray that uh, as we go through the book of Acts and we see uh, how, how we are to be on Great Commission, that we'd apply these truths to our lives. We would find out what works and follow the positive examples. We would uh, avoid uh, the things that didn't work here. But God, more than anything, we want to be used of you uh, to make disciples. And so, Lord, I, I pray that the truths we find here in these first 15 verses of Acts 17, we'd apply them to our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's in verses 1 through 9 um, that we learn of the gospel reaching Thessalonica. Verse 1 tells us that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, um, that's the they there, uh, they left Philippi and they headed about 100 miles away to the city of Thessalonica. They passed through a few cities on the way. Amph- See, I did it already. Amphipolis and Apollonia. (laughs) And in verse 2, we learn of the gospel being revealed. Verse 2 says that Paul, as his manner was, 
went into the synagogue there in Thessalonica for three Sabbath days. So for three weeks, uh, on each Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and it says he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So from this description, um, we should not assume that uh, this mission team's time in Thessalonica was limited to three weeks. That's just the time that Paul spent in the synagogue to share the gospel with the Jews. It's likely that in between those uh, Saturdays, those Sabbath days, and, and maybe for a good while after, uh, Paul and his mission team shared the gospel with other people in that city as well. But uh, I want you to notice what being involved in the Great Commission looks like. That's something that's really highlighted in this passage. This is what making disciples looks like. Um, this is what sharing the gospel looks like. Uh, this is what always needs to occur if we are going to truly be involved in missions. It's reasoning with people out of the scriptures. That's an essential element in disciple making. Uh, now, other things are a part of missions, for sure. Uh, tangible expressions of God's love and you and I meeting people's needs. Yes, acts of mercy, uh, definitely part of missions. But if something is going to be missions, um, at least in a biblical sense of the concept, it must include sharing the truth of God's word with other people. And it's in verse 3 that we get a more detailed description of the gospel being revealed by this mission team that way. Paul was opening and alleging that Jesus Christ, that the Messiah, that God had promised to his people that he must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And this Jesus, whom Paul was preaching unto them, is Christ. He is the Messiah that God had promised. The gospel is revealed in all of that right there. And that is missions pointing people to who Jesus is and what he has done for them to save them from their sins and give them eternal life by faith in him. Now, we know, we know that this was always Paul's custom, as it says there, uh, on every mission trip, and I, I, I have written here, and in every city. We're actually going to learn next week in the passage that wraps up uh, chapter 17 that there was one city that he didn't do this in, in Athens, but in every other one, he always went to the local synagogue first where he would be given the opportunity, because he was a theologically trained Jewish man, he'd be given the opportunity to preach the scriptures, to preach the Old Testament word of God. And that's what he does here. He takes all of those Old Testament passages, and there's a bunch of them. In fact, the majority of the Old Testament, um, all of those passages that point to Jesus Christ, and Paul reveals to those listening that this was always part of God's promise and part of God's plan, that the Messiah, that he would send to save them, that he would suffer and that he would die, and that he would rise from the grave. That was a major struggling point for Jewish people. They couldn't understand a Messiah who would do that. Now, we know that Scripture clearly teaches that in Isaiah, so many other places. Um, and then Paul invites them to place their faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. Church, that is missions. It's you and I pointing people to Jesus. It's using God's Word to teach them uh, who Jesus is, and what he's done for them, what God offers us in Jesus Christ, and then inviting them to place their faith in Jesus. That is what being involved in the Great Commission is. That's disciple-making. That's how it starts. Now, let's see what happens next in verse 4. The gospel is received. It says some of them believed, meaning some of those Jewish people who heard and who understood the gospel revealed by Paul this way, some of them believed, and they received Jesus as their personal Savior. Uh, we know this because it says next that they consorted with Paul and Silas, meaning they joined them in faith in Jesus. And, and in every Jewish synagogue in this region, 
Um, there were also Gentiles who were in the process, at least at some level, of converting to Judaism. And, and verse 4 also tells us that a great multitude of these devout Greeks also, they also believed and received Christ as Savior. And there's one more demographic that is listed here who placed their faith in Christ for salvation. It says, and of the chief women, not a few. So a significant number of probably Jewish ladies who were in some position of notoriety, uh, they too were among those who got saved through the mission teams revealing the gospel to them. Wonderful, right? Praise the Lord. A bunch of people getting saved. It's always massively encouraging when you're involved in the Great Commission, when you're on mission, when you see results. Now that can't be our sole motivation, uh, but it sure helps. It sure helps. We have to realize that, that you and I, we don't save anybody, <laughs> It's the Holy Spirit who uh, opens people's hearts, just like he did with Lydia back in, in Philippi when they first got to Macedonia. You and I were just to be faithful, uh, faithful in doing what this mission team always did, taking God's word, opening in it, uh, sharing it with others, and praying that the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and their heart for their need to trust in Jesus as their Savior. But not everybody who, who heard Paul preach and share God's word with them not everybody responded by receiving the gospel. Verses 5 through 9 also tell us about the gospel being rejected. You know, and as motivating as someone receiving the gospel is, uh, when you're on mission, when you're sharing God's word with them, uh, seeing the gospel be rejected, that, that's heartbreaking. I'm sure some of you have experienced that. It's tough. I mean, out of love and, and a genuine concern for where somebody's going to spend eternity, yeah, you want them to recognize the great grace and love of God for us in the gospel. But we need to face the fact, and that's what we're uh, told here repeatedly in the book of Acts, some people receive it, but some people reject it. They might not receive it right then and there. They might reject it like happens here in verses 5 through 9. We find out that some of the Jews, which believed not and who were moved with envy, it says they took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and they gathered a company to set all the city in an uproar and actually assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So those who did not receive the gospel, they were not willing to just ignore it and say, yeah, it's not for me uh, or reject it. No, they were so upset that so many had received the gospel. They wanted to prevent that from happening further here. And so they enlisted some help from uh, some nefarious locals and they began to cause problems for this mission team. They even went to a fellow named Jason's house, probably where this mission team was staying, and they tried to find and bring out Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, to the angry mob that uh, they had created. And, you know, it is demoralizing when you see people reject the gospel, um, but it can be outright dangerous when some who reject it go to this level of animosity in their, in their rejection of Christ. It happens every day. We see it in our culture. I really don't understand it. I suppose um, conviction and guilt drives people to do this. Uh, have you ever noticed how bent out of shape atheists get uh, at Christians who share the gospel? It doesn't make sense to me because, I mean, if you reject it, fine, but why do you have to get uh, so angry, sometimes even violent, about a God that you say doesn't even exist? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Verses 6 and 7, they tell us that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they weren't at Jason's house. And so this angry mob of people, this angry mob of gospel rejectors, they took Jason and they took other believers, people who had just trusted Christ there in Thessalonica, and they brought them to the rulers of the city 
And then they pronounce this accusation over them. Would you look at that um, in verse, verses 6 and 7, especially uh, verse 7. And it says, these that have turned the world upside down, they've come here also, whom Jason has received. And these do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They say that there's another king, one Jesus. Now, there's a couple things I want to highlight here. Uh, first of all, what an awesome description of what it means to follow Jesus Christ there at the end of verse 6, isn't it? Uh, that's what a Christian ought to be. In our Great Commission involvement, we should be people who turn the world upside down for Jesus. I think that's maybe my favorite phrase in all of the book of Acts. Now, obviously, that's a description from uh, the perspective of someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior and who's rejected the gospel. But Because in reality, um, hopefully, we're, Lord willing, we're being used of God to turn an upside-down world back right-side up, right? I hope that's what we're doing. And this is this is kind of a backhanded compliment. Have you ever gotten a backhanded compliment? I remember when I was working down the road there, uh, I worked in an office, and I was the only guy. There's a bunch of ladies in there. And this one lady, she used to kind of do this to some other ladies there. She would come in, and she'd see somebody, and she'd say to them, man, I, I just wish I could be like you and just get out of bed in the morning and you know, not even really care how I look. And it was like this weird little backhanded compliment. <laughs> I mean, they mean it as an insult here, an accusation. They've turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. But the point is that the way we think and what we say and what we do as Jesus followers, it should make a difference. It should make such a difference that there is a real impact on our culture. There's an impact in the lives of those around us. Now, secondly, in verse 7, let's look more closely at the legal accusation here, because from it we can discern that it was the unbelieving Jews <clears throat> who had rejected the gospel. They, they were the ones that were behind all of this uproar. Only they would have the theological knowledge to know that a Christian, a follower of Christ, does in fact have another king. We do, don't we? We have another king. I'm so glad. And our king, he's currently on the throne in heaven. He's reigning in the hearts of those who are his. I hope he is. He's reigning in his church. And one day, one day he will return and he will reign here forever, uncontested by any other human authority. This angry mob was motivated by some envious Jews who rejected the gospel. They were implying that because Christians have another king that we're troublemakers. Now, we desire uh, to cause anarchy in this world. You know, nothing could be further from the truth because throughout the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that we are to submit to those leaders here on this earth who God has sovereignly placed in authority over us. Unless some command from them would cause you and I to disobey God or his word or his will for us, we are to see them as God's instruments for our good and we are to obey them. Anybody who claims to follow Jesus is to follow him in this. And so uh, this accusation and any fears uh, that the leaders had or that the people in Thessalonica had, and, and talks about that in verse 8, they were troubled. You know, Thessalonica was a Roman colony. They had a Roman proconsul, and they were proud that they served Rome. And the last thing they wanted is somebody coming in and causing trouble. But, but their fears were unfounded. While the gospel, the gospel definitely has political implications, um, 
But having Jesus as our king, for the, that makes Christians better citizens. It does when we obey God's word by our following Christ. So, so not being able to locate, they couldn't find Paul, they couldn't find this mission team. It says uh, in verse 9 that the leaders made Jason pay some kind of bail-type fine to ensure that there wouldn't be any more trouble, and then they let them all go. They couldn't find this mission team because uh, the team members had uh, been sent away by the brethren, by these new Christians in Thessalonica. That's what verse 10 tells us. In verses 10 to 15, we are told that the gospel then reaches Berea. When they got there, when Paul uh, got there, what do you think that this mission team did? Where did they go? Well, verse 10 says they went to the synagogue of the Jews. And once again, we see the gospel revealed, uh, this time in Berea. I know that on the outline on the front of your bulletin, it looks like the A, B, and, and C subpoints there. They're the same, and it may feel like as we go through the book of Acts that we're, we're reading the same account over and over again. The same kind of thing is always happening. In one sense, that's true, but here in Berea, things are remarkably, noticeably different than before. There's a very unique description in verse 11. It says, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Well, that's a compliment there. What does that mean? Who are the these? Well, the NIV puts it this way. The Berean Jews were of more noble character. Now, what does that mean? And why are they described by God this way? In the Greek, noble is eugenisteroi, and it literally means to be of higher rank. They were of higher rank. Why does God describe them that way to us? Well, verse 11 tells us because they received the word of God with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Now, before we pick that sentence apart to understand it, because there's a, there's a whole lot there, um, have you ever noticed different church names uh, around? As you, that's one thing I do when I'm traveling. When, I, when we go on vacation later this week, I like to visit old churches especially, but I always keep my eyes out. Uh, and um, one thing I was considering, you rarely see today churches uh, around us that are named after a New Testament church, a church you'd find in the Bible. There's no uh, Philippi Baptist Church here in North Carolina. There's no Ephesian Christian Assembly somewhere here in America that I know of. Um, definitely no, I've never seen a church that chose the name Laodicean, probably because of how they're described in Revelation. Uh, one of the only New Testament churches that I've ever seen a church here in the United States take as their church's name is this one. Have you ever seen a Berean Baptist church? Man, I've seen a ton of them. Uh, and here's why. These people uh, who were, they're Jews. They're not even Christians yet. They're Jews in a synagogue at this point, not even a church yet. What does it say there in verse 11? They received God's word that was preached by Paul with all readiness of mind. Wouldn't you want God to describe you that way? Man, I want God to describe me that way. And so when you come to God's word on your own, uh, whether you know, you're just at home or you're leading your family at worship at home, or when you come together here for worship and God's word is delivered in song, God's word is delivered in sermon, my question is, are you coming ready to receive it like they did with all readiness of mind? Is your heart prepared? You know, how your experience of worship on Sunday has a lot to do with Saturday night. And you prepare in your heart. You prepare in your family to be ready to receive God's word. It also says here that they search the scriptures daily. Now, I like our name, Dublin First Baptist Church, just fine. But I hope that we could be called Bereans because that's true of every single one of us here. Do you search the scriptures daily? 
Could God describe you as a Jesus follower of being of higher rank because you have that kind of dependence on God's life-giving, life-transforming word? Or is it something that at best you try to fit into your already busy schedule? Hmm. They did these things. It says there, to discern whether those things were so. Do you know what we have here? We have the answer to life that tells us. You know, we have truth here. We can find out whether or not those things were so. They were in God's word on a daily basis so as to make sure that they could know whether what Paul was saying was true or not. Are you able to do that because you're in God's word the same way they were? Listen, I commit to you to always preach God's word and to only preach God's word from this pulpit, but God has given you, he's given you, Christian, a responsibility to be a check on that. And on that message you hear on the radio or on some podcast or something that somebody shares on social media, because of your daily, like just like that, your daily time in God's word, because of your passionate searching of the scriptures, are you able to recognize when someone says that God's word is saying something that it most certainly is not saying? Pastor Vody Balkum said, if we don't know the Bible, if we do not know doctrine, if we do not know theology, then it's virtually impossible for us to identify false teachers or false teaching. That's pretty important, isn't it? Truth, God's truth, is that essential for our lives? And that's why, honestly, I love post-service questions that I get from you all. I love that. I love seeing Berean-like activity among you. I want you to notice in the next verse, uh, because all of verse 11 and what they did, it played a role in what happens here in verse 12. Here the gospel's received. It says, therefore, therefore. So because of their actions in verse 11, many of them believed. And also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. A bunch of people got saved that day in Berea. Disciples were created. They began their lifelong journey uh, and disciple, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, because of how they viewed God's word, how they handled God's word, because of how they responded to God's word. And once more, it wasn't everyone there. Once again, we see the gospel rejected, too. Verse 13 tells us that the same troublemakers from Thessalonica, they came over to Berea, and they stirred up the people there against this mission team and what they were saying. I do want you to notice what it is that they were most against. What were they most concerned with? It says, the word of God that was preached by Paul. You know, most of the time that's the case when the gospel is being rejected. Maybe you shared the gospel with somebody. They didn't receive Christ as their Savior. Maybe you even got a, I've had doors slammed in my face before. Um, I kind of was chased with a knife one time. It wasn't really chased. Uh, I went to a lady's house. And I think she was cooking something, and I told her who I was and what I was doing, and um, she had a big old cleaver there. I hope that's what she was doing with cooking, but she said, strictly Lutheran, strictly Lutheran. I said, okay, have a nice day. Um, but maybe, maybe you've shared the gospel and they didn't receive it and you felt rejected. I, they're not rejecting you as a messenger as much as they're rejecting the message. That's what it says here. I mean, their uproar was because uh, of the word of God being preached by, by Paul. It was a convicting truth of God's word that they were against. And there's no subsequent or identical situation just like there was back in Thessalonica. There's no mob that rises up here. We know from verses 14 to 15 that those in Berea who trusted Christ as Savior, those who had gotten saved there, it says that they immediately sent Paul away. And Silas and Timothy abode there still. Paul heads to Athens eventually, 
Uh, Silas and Timothy join him there. But for a little while, the mission team is split up. That's not a, a bad plan to avoid further problems like they had been having. The gospel has been revealed to you this morning here in this passage. And I, my question for you is, which category do you fall under? Are you a gospel rejecter or a gospel receiver? And if you never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, who he is and what he has done for you to save you from your sins, I want you to do that right now, right, right now, even as I'm, I'm talking. Uh, tell the Lord in prayer that, that you are a sinner, but you now know from the gospel of Jesus Christ that he came to pay the penalty for your sins and to give you uh, eternal life. Tell God you want to receive Jesus as your Savior this morning. Now, for you gospel receivers, you're like, well, I've done that. I want to focus in on just two elements as we move to a moment to respond to God's word. Could you be given that backhanded compliment that we read about earlier? Uh, because of how you think and, and the things that you say and how you live your life, could anybody accuse you of turning the world upside down for Jesus? I guess what I'm asking is, are you so like Jesus that you make the impact that he did on this world? Are you so like Jesus that you make the impact these disciples did as they followed him? And if not, will you tell God this morning that that's what I want my testimony to be from here on out? I want to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. I hope you will, but you know the only way that's going to happen in your life is if you commit to being a Berean. Um, you, can't, you can't turn this world upside down in your own strength or your own power. Uh, you have to use, you have to depend on what this mission team did. You have to use, you have to depend on what the Bereans did. So this morning, Christian, I ask you know, uh, will you confess to God that your reliance on God's word has not been everything it should be lately? Will you tell the Lord, I, I want to always come to your word uh, with all readiness of mind. I want to search the scriptures daily. I want to uh, use your word to know whether or not these things are so. And, and listen, you are going to have to take specific practical steps for that to happen in your life. Um, and and I, it'd be my joy to show you different ways you can, you can implement God's word on a daily basis in your life. Call me, message me. I'd love to help you out with that. But will you tell God this morning, I always want to come to your word with all readiness of mind. I want to come ready, prepared to understand it and to uh, joyfully obey it. Will you pray this morning, God, I realize that if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to be used of you to make any kind of real impact here in this world, I have to search the scriptures daily. I mean, we cannot get a day through a day strong if we don't eat or if we don't drink or if we don't breathe. So why could we think that we could live for Jesus without a daily reliance on God's word? Will you tell God this morning that you want him to reveal his will for your life through his word? You know, it's not a mysterious or hidden thing. God tells us in Jeremiah 23, 29 that his word is like a fire. It's like a, a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. He wants us to know his word. He wants it to be a powerful thing in our lives. He wants it burning within us. He wants it breaking down strongholds. Will you ask the Lord to reveal himself and his will to you through it? He'll answer that prayer. He'll come through on that kind of commitment. As Tommy comes and leads us in a time to respond to God's word, however the Holy Spirit is moving you to respond today, I just ask that you'd obey him.